0: Baby, I'll give it to you.
1: That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are
2: you ready to begin?
3: Yes, I'm all set, sir. Welcome to Space Buffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists and I'm Richard Hollingham.
4: (laughs) And I'm Sue Nelson. Um, This time we'll be hearing about the zombies of the cosmos, a new comms system for the space station and celebrating the life of an astronaut equivalent to Mad Men's Don Draper, Alan Shepard.
3: Our guest is science journalist and author Katya Moskvich. We're going to talk about neutron stars uh, katya a little later on that that's your book but let me just get a comment from you first of all on the news that ESA, the european space agency is going to recruit another lot of astronauts i mean that's quite exciting isn't it
0: yeah it's it's really cool actually when i saw it yesterday on linkedin um a former acquaintance of mine who now works in the communications department of ESA, he put it on linkedin and, and i was the first to react saying you know i'm in I've sent you my CV, <laughs> let me know the launch date. So that was quite funny, but it is incredibly exciting, of course. And uh, I know it's the first time since 2008 and they're also going to be flying astronauts with disabilities. So I'm not exactly sure how exactly they're going to do it. I don't think they're sure themselves yet what, what route they're going to take, but it's incredibly exciting for sure.
4: It is. And I would have thought um, you'd be in with a good chance, as is. We've had a guest on the program, Susie Imba, who is a space scientist, works on the Bepi Columbo mission. She won the British uh, TV program series, So You Want to Be a, an Astronaut. She's incredibly fit. I don't want to put you off, <laughs> Katya. I'm not saying she's competition, <laughs> but, you know, she climbs mountains. But they also specified, although we don't have all the details yet, because all the full details will come out in a press conference, they did. De- it's say they wanted more women, which is brilliant, as well as this para-astronaut, para-astronaut feasibility study, which would sort of make sense because if your disability, for instance, is that you can't walk or you're in a wheelchair, who needs to walk in space?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, it, does, it does make total sense. And um, I think it's opening a lot of doors and it's It's changing so much. I remember I wanted to be an astronaut when I was in high school many years ago. Um, I actually went to the same high school as Julie Payette, the second uh, female astronaut in Canada. Yeah, I saw her portrait on the wall and I was just so amazed that she went to the same school. And I wrote her this letter and I said, look, I'm 15. I don't know where to go study because I want to be just like you and I want to be an astronaut. And she actually replied. She wrote me a letter back, actually a postcard with some... ISS on it and Canada arm, the robotic arm that, you know, helps spacecraft to get attached to the International Space Station. And she said, uh, well, she, she advised me to go and study either engineering or science, which I did. I went and studied engineering, and then I wanted to go to space and be like a jet pilot. But unfortunately, they told me I couldn't be a pilot because of my vision. My vision wasn't 100%. So it brings us back to the criteria today, right? Like today, I don't think that would be a problem at all. Like if, if you don't have perfect vision or whatever disability you might have, I think with this particular round of recruitment, they're indeed opening a lot of doors to people to apply and, and go to space and experience it and, and maybe bring, a, well, not maybe, but for sure, bring some value because if you do have a specific talent but you have a disability, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to go and contribute somehow to whatever whatever it is you want to do. Well, I'm colorblind. Does that count?
4: Yeah, and, and my disability is age, I think, <laughs> because I suspect I will be above the age oh, right? John
3: Glenn went but into Glenn space but he'd already
4: gone before
3: what's interesting now is particularly with the SpaceX spacecraft it's back to the shuttle you couldn't have passengers again it's not like Soyuz where everyone really needs to know what they're doing and they're crammed into this tiny little capsule SpaceX is much more like a almost like a more like a bus you know it can actually just carry people who don't particularly have to engage unless something goes really badly wrong
0: yeah indeed and uh, that's why i think uh, in the future we'll have more and more space tourism as well so anyone will be able to go you know maybe I'll zoom around uh, the earth and go back again just take a few pictures and kind of remember it forever it would be amazing
3: Obviously, we need a journalist to go into space. Now, you were uh, born in the Soviet Union. I mean, we were talking about this just before we we started, and, and you were actually born in Siberia. You know, having Russian, that's gonna that's gonna give you a little bit of an edge when it comes to the the the, the fight between the various sides. <laughs> journalists, yeah, exactly. it's three of us uh, about who goes. Um, but I'm always intrigued by the way astronauts are, are, or cosmonauts are, are portrayed, particularly were were in the Soviet Union. I mean, I've been to Mission Control Moscow quite a few times now. And there's this, I mean, it's almost religious. It's almost like this, uh, you know, the, the sort of iconography of Gagarin's and, and people reaching for the stars. I mean, it's extraordinary that, but it doesn't seem to be there anymore. It seems to be a, a relic of, of the Soviet Union rather than... What Russia is now doing in space?
0: Yeah, I think it's, you know, it goes back to the Cold War and the space race and uh, Russia or the Soviet Union at the time trying to be better. And they were so much better than everybody else. You know, they've achieved so much, so many firsts, uh, starting from Sputnik, uh, the first satellite being launched into space, To, of course, the first dog, uh, to the two dogs that came back alive, and then the first uh, person to go to space, and so many more. And, uh, I mean, now, yes, unfortunately, uh, so much has changed, and uh, I don't know what the future of the Russia um, space program is going to be, because there have been so many delays and and failures, and uh, now with SpaceX... For, I think, nine years now, Americans have been using Russian rockets to get to the ISS. That was the only way. But, you know, obviously that's going to change. So I don't know what's going to happen. It's a bit sad. And uh, Gagarin' legacy, people still remember him. But I think probably people of uh, older generation remember him. Like, if you, if you ask a 10-year-old right now in Russia whether they know who Gagarin is, I don't think every 10-year-old is going to tell you, which is really sad. Wow.
3: It's really sad. You've been to the Gagarin Museum, haven't you? The, the actual in his, the village of his of where, where he's yes, from. Yes,
0: exactly. So I I did a story for the BBC at the time on the anniversary of human spaceflight, and I went to his birth village of Klushino, which is about just thirty minutes by train from Moscow, but. I was surprised just how difficult it is to actually get there. So you take the train, but then from the train, you, you gotta catch a bus or, or a taxi to get there through dirt roads. And finally you get to this completely remote, abandoned village. And there's this, maybe just a handful of houses still standing where, you know, some old people are still living. And his house has been transformed into a museum, but nobody's visiting. Some volunteers are looking after it. And it was just very sad. And, unfortunate, like I wouldn't imagine anything like that in the West, right? Like if, if um, the first person to go to space was from the US or anywhere else in the West, really, I think it would have been a very different picture. And and so his legacy, like nobody goes to that museum. Nobody would know, like 10 years from now, many people would, wouldn't know who he was. And that's very, very sad.
4: I'm surprised, actually, because one of the things that has proliferated over the last few years has been Yuri's night which is a really sort of popular way of getting together and celebrating Yuri Gagarin this year it's the 12th of of April so it sounds like maybe it's closer to home then that recognition is dwindling
0: well no i mean in russia people still celebrate his uh, birthday at uh, 12th of april it's still called the day of uh, uh, cosmos and People will still probably remember him and remember that he was the guy who went into space for the first time, but people wouldn't know who he is. And I just wonder if, like, if a kid would look uh, at his portrait and remember straight away who that person is. I mean, this is what I'm talking about. They will remember the feet, but they won't remember the details.
4: Well, you're right. I did a talk in a local school a few years ago and it was sixth formers, so aged between 16 and 18. And I showed a picture of Valentina Tereshkova and no one knew who she was. No one recognised her. And even when I said her name, I got blank faces and I was quite honestly shocked. It's not just Russian history, it's the world's history. The first woman in space. Of
0: course, yes. It's, yeah, I agree. Very shocking and sad.
4: Well, we'll come back again to you shortly when we'll talk about neutron stars. But let's go to what happened a few weeks ago when two NASA astronauts began the installation of a new antenna on the space station. It's called Colca, short for Columbus, K-A band terminal, because it's being attached to the station's ESA science laboratory, Columbus. Funded by the UK Space Agency, it's the UK's first big industrial contribution to the ISS and will upgrade communications for European astronauts to family and researchers on the ground designed and built by MDA UK in Harwell Oxfordshire I spoke to its managing director David Kenyon about the device and started by asking how he felt after the fridge sized Colker which was flown up to the space station last year was finally being attached to the space station
3: okay I have the large hook of the and we're keeping this one we are keeping
4: that one
1: that's the NASA astronaut. Mike Hopkins now out of the crew lock. He's working with NASA astronaut Victor Glover to transfer the Kolka or Columbus KA band antenna, which they brought out of the airlock with them.
0: They'll then head over to the Columbus module.
2: There's nothing like live operations I spent six years in Darmstadt doing flight operations and went through two launch campaigns, including being on console for a live operation. And there's no excitement quite like actually seeing something happening in space. And, of course, in those days we didn't have any video. It was all just telemetry. But to actually see the Colker the terminal attached to the end of the Canada arm, also made by MDA, being swung around by the astronauts, uh, no, it's, it's it's almost unreal, exciting, terrifying. You just just hoping it's all going to go well.
4: <laughs> I can understand the terror because you've obviously, having built and designed this, you, your investment is is pretty total, isn't it?
2: Well, this this terminal has created MDA in the UK. I mean, we've had a presence here for many years in in different guises, but this is the one that's really established us here. Has built the team. It's our first project, our first piece of uh, proper flight hardware and to, to see it up there and about to sort of really add value was you know it, it's really exciting.
4: So what situation is it at at the moment on the space station?
2: The terminal has been successfully positioned bolted to the structure the power has been connected and uh, the terminal is communicating so it's now ready to continue with uh, in orbit tests so we gradually switch on the various units and check out the different redundancies so that will proceed i mean it's it's a matter of operations and procedures when that takes place there's many, many activities going on in the space station many um checks have to take place and many operation activities have to be prepared before something happens so I'm waiting eagerly for the for the next step. I'm I'm not entirely sure when it will be, but uh, hopefully before too long.
4: Now, what I was surprised to find out, I don't know why, but I I sort of assumed that the antenna would be pointing down towards the earth,
2: but it's not, is it? No, that that's the whole point of data relay. The space station's travelling 47,000 miles an hour passing over ground stations anywhere two minutes to 12 minutes coverage if you're lucky so it's like trying to use an iphone on a train it's really very frustrating as the coverage comes and goes so colker points up to a geostationary satellite the edos satellite which it can see for a good 40 minutes of the orbit and the signals bounced off the the data relay satellite back to earth in harwell
4: and the speeds that this is going to produce give us an idea of of what speed, and also compare it to what what what's being used at the moment, particularly for astronauts. Well, the, the
2: NASA system is via TDRS, the NASA the NASA um, telecom data relay satellites. So they have some three hundred megabits in a standard link uh, via the TDRS system, but that's for the entire space station for absolutely everything. Kolka will give European astronauts a dedicated 50 megabit link to ground. So, you know, analogous to a good home broadband uh, for most people these days. So they'll be able to get a significant amount of data back to the ground in real time. And also the return links two megabits, but that is ample for welfare services, for commanding the payload, for doing experiments and operations in, in, in real time. And the key thing is it's dedicated to the European astronauts. If they want bandwidth on the NASA system, it has to be booked in. It's only short periods of time. It can't be, you know, reactive. So they've they've really got a good link that's theirs to use as the European astronauts want to.
4: Yeah, so it's, it's amazing the benefits then, because as you say, it's not just for astronaut communications. You mentioned experiments there in, in real time. So researchers on the ground in, in Europe, this is going to be a, a massive boost for them in terms of well, yeah. sitting there wait, waiting yeah. for data.
2: Yeah, Most experiments get sent up and every now and then a bunch of data will come back down again and the scientists will analyse it this now gives the opportunity to do things almost in real time because you can command from the ground an experiment. You can make changes to it and get the data almost instantly, you know, seconds of lag later. So it opens up a whole new range of experiments that can take place and much more timely data to the ground for things that are more, you know, time critical.
4: Now, in terms of what you've learnt from building and designing this, and obviously eventually when you it starts operating, will this have applications further than the earth in the in the future?
2: Very much so. We hold a contract already with ESA looking at deep space gateway communications focused on lunar base station terminals. It's all the same technologies, the same problems. We were part of a study which ESELEC last year looking into the, the, the architectures for lunar and planetary communications. And we were with SSTL and Goon Hilly. We are the, the contract holder for the RF distribution network for the Deep Space Gateway for the um, HLCS.
4: HLCS again, sorry.
2: The humans, human communication and landing, a uh, landing support system. I'll have to check that one. Actually, if
4: something in that. <laughs> we will just one. don't worry. We'll get that. Yes. It's it's the, yes. it's the
2: support system for the...
4: It's those words, but not necessarily in the right order. We've got those words.
2: The Halo Lunar Communication System.
4: Are you sure about that?
2: <laughs> Very sure. <laughs> okay, good. So we're under contract to TALIS for that. And there's a new initiative out from ESA at the moment called Moonlight, which um, we're hoping to be working on, which will also look at future mission architectures for lunar and deep space communications as as a PPP to, to stand up a full communication system led by Europe for any user on the moon. And, you know, having done Colca has enabled us to be at the heart of, of all of that.
4: That's great. Well, congratulations and, and lovely to know that there's a, a, a good bit of British uh, kit on that space station.
2: Thank you very much.
4: David Kenyon, Managing Director of MDA UK, which built the new Colca Antenna, on the space station.
3: Our guest is Katia Moskovich, uh, author of Neutron Stars The Quest to Understand the Zombies of the Cosmos. I do like that. Oh, I've got the book here. Title. It's a very good title. Uh, okay, so uh, question number one uh, What are neutron stars? Because it's not. Cause- one type of it's a whole kind of gamut of stars. We like group of stars.
0: Yeah, neutron stars. I mean, they're called stars, but they're effectively not stars anymore. So, and I think uh, the, the the name zombies is is incredibly fitting because they are undead. If you take a star like our sun, for example, when the sun is going to die, because it is going to die, not not very soon. So you know, no worry there. But <laughs> once once it dies, it's just it's going to be a really boring death. It's pr- it's first going to swell it and become a red giant. And uh, then it's just going to kind of dwindle and become this really boring object we call a brown dwarf, which you can't really see and it kind of stays in space forever and, you know, nothing is going to happen to it for a very long time. So, you know, pretty boring. But if you take a star, which is much more massive than the sun from about eight times and, and more, eight to 20 times more massive than the sun... Well, once it dies, it's going to go out with a bang. Uh, it's going to uh, expl- explode uh, in a supernova explosion. And uh, we're going to see it in optical telescopes because it's going to be really pretty. And even like with the naked eye, people used to see them before as well. So suddenly it the star just becomes much brighter. But... In fact, there is no star anymore. It's just an explosion in space. And what's left behind is this core of the star uh, made of iron. It's um, uh, a tiny object about 20 kilometers across. And it's still a sphere. So if you imagine, for example, the city of Manchester curled up into a ball, this is how big it is. And it doesn't radiate heat, so we can't see it with optical telescopes. Uh, It's spinning, and it's spinning actually quite rapidly. Uh, Some of them spin at about 600 uh, revolutions a second. And they radiate radio waves from the two magnetic poles, and we pick up this radiation as pulses because... You know, neutron stars spin, and when whenever they are in the uh, field of view of of our telescopes, of our radio telescopes, we pick pick up the pulses, and that's why we call them pulsars.
4: They're, they're quite fascinating, aren't they? These incredibly dense pits of matter, which is sort of unfathomably dense, spinning around. What made you interested in them specifically, particularly as your background is engineering? Was it the fact that these are just quite extraordinary objects in the solar system?
0: Well, my first degree is engineering. Um, my second degree uh, is journalism. And my third degree postgrad is actually theoretical physics. Uh, how inadequate oh do you my feel, goodness. Sue? Oh, my <laughs> goodness.
4: Okay, you might have just beaten Susie imbernell
3: (laughs) (laughs) we're out definitely aren't we yeah
4: no i shouldn't i shouldn't encourage competition (laughs) between women both of whom i admire very much because libby jackson from the uk space agency could well be listening and i'm pretty sure she will want to apply as well anyway but sorry so yes you've got three. this is amazing so you've got yeah so yeah so did you study neutron stars then while doing your theoretical physics
0: I studied dark matter and dark matter. uh, So I specialized in dark matter specifically. And this is kind of part of the the neutron star book as well. Yeah, I went into physics because I was writing so much about physics and astronomy. And so I decided to get a degree in physics to actually understand what I was writing about, if if that makes sense, because at times, (laughs) at times I would write a super complex feature on, on something, you know, some new discovery, and I wouldn't exactly be able to understand the whole story, and it annoyed the hell out of me. So I went to King's College London. I remember going to the director of uh, the physics faculty, and I said, uh, David, look, I, you know, I was working at Nature at the time. I said, I'm writing about physics. I don't understand everything 100%. I have to get a degree. And he looked at me, and he said, yeah, you know, I wish more science journalists were like that. So he was very... Very impressed. So that's how I got my uh, MPhil uh, in theoretical
3: physics. What was your original and... question about neutron stars?
0: <laughs> <laughs> why it was? Why? why yeah, why you neutron do... stars? There yeah, you go. well, there you well yeah, go. yeah, yeah. yeah. A good story. Um,
3: but I mean, the, the point is because I mean, when these were first discovered, that the pulsars, this this beat, there was this idea that it could be aliens or uh, they were just maybe some odd object. But the point is, like you said, with dark matter and everything's, this is all interconnected, and by studying. These you can tell so much more about the universe.
0: Yes, exactly. So, why I decided to write a book on neutron stars? I was at a conference uh, that was in August 2017, and it uh, the conference was for the 50th anniversary of the discovery of the first pulsar in 1967, and I remember people kept talking about something in hush-hush tones and I couldn't understand or hear them because they knew I was a reporter but they wouldn't tell me what they were talking about and I was like oh my god what is going on and then at the end of the conference I missed my bus and I had to get to my Airbnb so uh, this this guy shows up uh, it was one of the astronomers uh, Matthew Bales actually uh, quite a well-known as I found out later, uh, astronomer from Australia. He gave me a ride and he told me, he said, I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, it's going to be the biggest story of your career. He was very careful because he was under embargo, so he couldn't say this actually happened. But basically, he told me about... Two neutron stars colliding in space so that was the famous story it was all over all over the media the media and uh, back then in august or well, actually not in august they the paper came out in october so he told me you know what if they were to collide what if this was to happen then it would send gravitational waves and we would you know prove einstein right and and so it it did um, turn out into a beautiful story on this merger of two of these two objects and then um, an editor from Harvard University Press reached out to me, and I thought, and asked me to write a book on anything. And I thought, well, I just wrote this big piece on these two amazing objects and I don't know much about them so wouldn't it be great to find out more and write a whole book so this 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 story this merger of two neutron stars kind of prompted me to start researching and I found that actually there wasn't there weren't a lot of books written on pulsars uh, and still aren't I don't think not for general audience anyway so this is how it all uh, started
3: and what i like about the book it's it's really a travel log it's your it's your travels to see these various places and you've gone to some very cool places and very cool uh, observatories and radio telescopes like the parks one in australia which i've also been to which is also fantastic but it's also that that scientific process because i think that's so many science books are can just be very factual you've got the facts in there you've got the science in there but it's the travel aspect I'm really fascinated by and the sort of scientists you meet along the way
0: yeah I mean uh, when I started uh, researching the book in the early days I thought okay how am I going to make it work for a general audience because um Indeed, not everybody is going to be interested in neutron stars. Okay, I find them fascinating. But, you know, would my mom be interested in the merger of two neutron stars? Probably not, you know, even though she, she is a very curious person. She is a, a pediatrician, but it doesn't mean she would necessarily read it. So I thought, okay, I have to turn it around and I have to talk about the people behind these discoveries because then I will interest a lot more people who are not even necessarily interested in, in the science of it. And for that, I thought, okay, I'm going to go to all these amazing places, to all these observatories, and I'll try to take my readers with me. I'll try to describe these places, describe the atmosphere, talk to the few people who still work there. Because 10 years ago or so, people used to, astronomers used to go uh, to the observatories and observe being there uh, on location, but not anymore. Right now, they could be sitting in their office at university and operating a telescope in Australia or something while being in the US. But it doesn't matter. You know, still, I found people who are still there and who remember astronomers uh, buzzing around and remember. And so there's this nostalgia that comes across. And people's faces just light up. And when I interviewed other people who were not necessarily there, but even speaking to them on the phone, but because I went to that place where they were maybe 10 years ago, it was a completely different conversation. So I think it really helped me uh, take my readers to the places where they wouldn't necessarily or probably won't necessarily go ever in their lives.
4: That's great. And, um, as someone who who used the same technique for Wally Funk's race for space, I can totally relate to why you did it that way. I think, not least because I think it's more interesting for the reader, but I also think it's more interesting to write. And you've got something that you're spending years on. You've got to really like what you're what you're writing, otherwise it'll be one of those projects. That you would come to resent in a way. Now, I've I've not read it yet because Richard's been reading it, so I'm really looking forward to reading it. Do you interview or do you meet um, Jocelyn Bell? Bennell
0: at all in this? I, I can't imagine you not. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I met Joycelyn. She's amazing. She's such a lovely, lovely person. Um, we met in Oxford. She's a visiting professor now at Oxford University. But before I met her in Oxford, I went to Cambridge to see what remains um, of the array that she used in 1967 to discover to, to yeah to find that first pulsar, which she did call uh, as as Richard you were saying earlier but aliens. She, because she didn't know what it was. So her and her um, colleagues, uh, it was a really tight group of people and they actually kept it very secret because they didn't know what that weird pulse was. Uh, so they called it uh, LGM, Little Green Men, LGM 1. And then they spotted LGM 2, 3, and 4. So by the time they found four of them, they knew it weren't aliens, of course, but, but uh, something, something else, a new object in space. But she still um, she still laughs about it because she was telling me how she was uh, doing her PhD at the time, and she was about to finish the PhD, and suddenly, and and that was the the project on using this array in Cambridge was to um, was on something completely different, interplanetary scintillation, and when she spotted the weird signal and they thought for a few months that it might be aliens, she told me, you know, half jokingly, of course. You know, here I am trying to finish my PhD thesis and this silly bunch of aliens is trying to kinda screw it up for me. So so she was she's very she's super funny and she's an amazing person. She's still giving lectures all over the world. Yeah, so.
4: I, I heard her give a lecture actually earlier last year, just before uh, the pandemic actually just before lockdown, and it was wonderful to see her treated like a rock star. All these, it was a, a, a conference for women, young women in in physics, and uh, she was just surrounded by women, just going, oh, oh, you know, desperate to talk to her. Um, so it's lovely that uh, you've got her in that because she's somebody I think who brings humanity to the science that she does and makes it understandable and totally relatable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, she didn't get um, what really makes me sad is that she didn't get the Nobel Prize, yeah. but her supervisor did, right? Mm. Uh, Anthony Hurish. And he didn't discover uh, the pulse or she did. So this is completely, I think, unacceptable. But she's totally cool about it. She, of course, went on to win many other awards and, and recognition. And uh, But she still, another anecdote she told me, she said at the time when she was interviewed about the discovery, she said, yeah, and so the reporters asked me very important questions, like, for example, who I was dating at the time.
4: (laughs) Oh, some things don't change, do they? (laughs) What's always disappointing
3: with this is we now know that pulsars aren't aliens it's almost certain that fast radio bursts will turn out not to be aliens uh, you know the more we discover about the cosmos the more fascinating and amazing it turns out to be but the less likely there are to be aliens
0: i disagree with that that wasn't on really this, a question yeah. but <laughs> i don't i don't agree with that Thank uh, you. i think uh... It would be silly to assume we are the only, you know, intelligent beings out there. Uh, when Did we're that, Richard? <laughs> she said silly. <laughs> exactly. So we're just a tiny planet in a tiny solar system somewhere on the outskirts of uh, one single galaxy when there are so many more planets and, you know, galaxies out there. I'm pretty sure, and with all the habitable planets we've found so far, uh, I'm pretty sure there must be some kind of life. If not intelligent, then at least, you know, on a very basic level but I'm pretty sure we're not alone
3: (laughs) well that's me told Uh, Katia thank you very much Uh, Katia's book is Neutron Stars uh, the quest to understand the zombies of the cosmos it's really great I do recommend it Uh, some great pictures as well there's one I've got an almost identical picture Uh, you're in standing in the middle of the um, parks dish in uh, Australia. I've got one almost the same. And it's you just wearing a dress? I wasn't wearing. No. no, that's true. Actually, I wasn't wearing a dress.
0: <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> so
3: almost no, almost exactly the same. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you, Katia, Katia, thank you so much. It was uh, very good uh, talking to you.
0: Great. Thanks for inviting me. Thank
4: you. In a moment, we'll celebrate the fast living life of America's first man in space, Alan Shepard. This is Space Buffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientist. Do get in touch on Facebook or Twitter. You can also email us at, and it's a slightly different email this time, podcast at spaceboffins.com or info at uk. Now, I only put the
3: two emails in because one... It seems to work intermittently. It should work. (laughs) And it works from some people. It doesn't work from others. It It seems to be discriminating. Yeah, exactly. Well,
4: if you're new to Space Boffins do subscribe to the podcast. And maybe you could write a review. Only if it's good, of course, but not before you've listened to our next
3: item. Over the past few months, we've chatted a few times about Alan Shepard. In May 1961, he became America's first astronaut and the second man in space. He was grounded after he developed an inner ear disorder, which led to severe dizziness, vertigo and nausea. Not great for an astronaut. Uh, but following a successful experimental operation, he landed on the moon 50 years ago as commander of Apollo 14.
0: Twenty feet, ten. Three feet per second. Contact down. New stop. auto, auto. We're on the surface. Okay, we made a good landing. Yeah. Roger,
3: Anderson. Four thirteen plus ten thousand. That was a beautiful one. Alan Shepard's portrayed in the new TV series *The Right Stuff* as fast living, womanizing, and with a poor relationship with the media. So. Is that true? Well, to find out, I've been speaking to Neil Thompson. He's the author of Light This Candle, The Life and Times of Alan Shepard.
1: One of the things that drew me to him and his story in the first place was that we knew so little about him. You know, we knew the high level stuff. First American in space, fifth man on the moon, hit golf balls on the moon. But as a personality, he was always kind of cagey and elusive and, and standoffish. And he really was those things. I think the reason we didn't get to know him is because he went out of his way to keep the press and to keep the public at a distance. I think he viewed his job as an astronaut the same way he viewed his job as a Navy test pilot. Just put your head down and do the work and be the best. I mean, he was super competitive. So when he died in uh, the late 90s, I was working as a journalist at the Baltimore Sun newspaper and thought, huh, there's no biography about Alan Shepard. He had co written a book with Deke Slayton, Moonshot, that gave a little glimpse into his personality, but we really didn't know him. And so many of the other early astronauts had books written about them or wrote their own books. So I wanted to dig in and get to know who was this guy and how did, what was it about his personality that led him to that? place where he was picked to be first how does a guy end up being the first guy into space i wanted to really dig into his personality the film the right stuff hints at this
3: but the tv series very much goes into this that he was this this womanizer he was he epitomized that fast living uh, almost like madmen type figure in the late 50s and early 60s how how realistic is, is that Portrayal of him,
1: I think it's pretty realistic. I mean, some of the specifics uh, are obviously fictionalized, and and they played with that. But that's who he was. He definitely was a Don Draper kind of guy. Um, I describe him in the book as showing up at a uh, you know a backyard picnic with a suit and tie, you know, looking dapper. He drove a fancy car, uh, you know, this Corvette that he drove for years and years. So he was a slick partying, womanizing, flirty guy. Uh, It's definitely who he was. And he had a wife who had died just weeks after he did, so I was never able to interview her. But I did talk to his daughters and other family friends, and it was something that she was kind of aware of and just turned an an eye away from it and and just kind of accepted it as part of the deal. She she joked at one point uh, that, uh, you know, what do you expect from a sailor?
3: But NASA must have accepted it as well because, you know, they wanted this, you know, portrayal of the the ideal of going into space. But that must have been a risk, really, knowing what he was getting up to. I mean, it was one of the reasons Gordon Cooper was almost sidelined because he was having a, a messy divorce.
1: Exactly, yeah. I, I, If you look back, I think the risks that NASA took during those years are remarkable, <laughs> you know, taking risks on these guys who were... They were bad boys, especially Shepard. And there were a lot of things that NASA accepted because they wanted that persona. They wanted this sort of test pilot, badass personality to represent who who the astronauts were but in inviting that personality into their world they had to accept the womanizing and the and the fast cars and and these like ridiculously dangerous stunts in airplanes and helicopters
3: isn't there a story of him flying very low over a beach and sort of knocking swimming costumes off people and, and you know it's just as one example
1: right buzzing the beach uh, in, in florida i forget what the name of the beach was i think it was gordon cooper who buzzed the uh, the tower because he was mad about a delay in one of his uh, his flights prior to that shepherd was notorious for flying under bridges and upside down and doing loops and all this crazy stuff but that's who these guys were
3: did he change between his first Flight, the Mercury flight, and his Apollo fourteen flight. Obviously, he was grounded in the in the interim. He lost one of his friends, Gus Grissom, in the Apollo one fire. Was it a different astronaut that that landed and walked on the moon?
1: I think very much so. I think that really shook him, and I get into that in the book a little bit. He lost a good friend. He was angry uh, about what he felt was a sense of complacency that had slipped into the program. At that time, he oversaw the the astronauts. He was the astronaut program director, and he really pushed all the uh, astronauts under his um, uh, control to uh, train harder and work harder and get past that sense of complacency that had slipped in. So I think that that sense of humility and teamwork became part of who he was later on in his astronaut career.
3: He was slated to fly Apollo thirteen. It's often said that he wasn't ready, so they bumped him. The crew wasn't ready, uh, so they bumped them to Apollo fourteen, uh, with a total of what fifteen minutes twenty two seconds flight experience between <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah. I mean, were they were they ready? I mean, is that a bit unfair o- on him? And this whole, this idea of the rookie crew is that also a little bit unfair?
1: I think it's a a fascinating sort of footnote to Apollo 14 was that the the other two astronauts uh, had not been in space yet, where some of the other Apollo astronauts have been up multiple times. So you've got two true rookies, and then you've got Shepard, who's been up for 15 minutes. I do think that decision not to let him take Apollo 13 had to do with um, maybe not a lack of fully being trained, but but also they wanted to make sure this disease that he had been fighting had been fully corrected. He had experimental surgery in his uh, inner ear canal, the area that, that controls our, our balance and spatial awareness, all these things that are super important for an, an astronaut flying a spacecraft down to the moon. So they wanted to put him through the ringer and make sure that this surgery had solved the problem that he was fully ready and that he and the other two were fully trained and ready for Apollo 14.
3: And yet it's remembered for playing golf on the moon, which seems a little unfair when you actually read about what happened during the, the Apollo 14 mission.
1: Yeah, some of the details are remarkable. I, I was rereading sections of my book to remind myself uh, some of those episodes. And uh, even I was astounded at some of the moments where the whole thing might have just been cancelled not being able to early in the mission to dock the command module and the lunar module um, and having to kind of slam them together and hope for the best. And then finally they latched on and they were able to continue on to the moon. That was a close call. Um, There was a moment where there was an an abort signal on the um, control panel that kept flashing on and (laughs) Ed Mitchell, Shepard's co-pilot, like literally tapping on the control panel and watching the light go out. If they hadn't solved that problem, they probably would not have been able to land because if that abort signal kicks in, it automatically aborts the mission and they'd be pushed away from the, the moon. So they had to fix that problem. There's a great episode with that flight where they had to wake up this young MIT engineer, middle of the night, rush him into the command center and and have him come up with a software program within 90 minutes Otherwise, the mission would be aborted. He did it in about an hour. It took some testing for them to like get it into the uh, uh, onboard computer and make sure it was working. And they had literally a minute to spare before they were, would have otherwise had to abort the mission. There was the incident uh, as they're descending toward the moon where the radar shows Shepard where he's landing went out. And again, he would have had to abort, although he later claimed that he was going to land anyway with or without the radar
3: what 's your impression now or of him and his 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 space career, or maybe his his career you know overall because he you know had a successful business career after returning from the moon
1: yeah uh you know one of the things and you 're a writer, you know this when you go into a book, you think you know what the story is and you have this hoped for outcome. With Shepherd, I had that, but also this nagging fear that, I would, that the deeper I got into his life, that I would find somebody I disliked, you know, somebody that was not a good person, and was relieved and, and surprised at all the nuances I found about this guy and his personality, and ultimately found him to be a remarkable human being.
3: Neil Thompson, author of Light This Candle, The Life and Times of Alan Shepard. So pretty much everything you saw in the Right Stuff TV series or the Right Stuff film was true. Uh, What I find extraordinary or most extraordinary about Alan Shepard is we were talking earlier about Yuri Gagarin, you know, not having that name recognition Mm. in uh, Russia now. I don't think Alan Shepard's got the name recognition. He was the first American in space. Hold yeah, well on. What everyone's, do you base
4: this on? No, this but on? everyone's
3: heard of John Glenn. When you, how
4: no, 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 how it's, do you know this? Well,
3: <laughs> no, but you ask around. I I bet. I would prepare to, bet you, so this is prepared to study. bet you this Star Trek mug, this <gasps> Starfleet Command mug, no. that more people have heard of uh, John Glenn than they have at Alan Shepard.
4: Yep, you're
3: on. 50p. No, okay, no, no, that mug. Uh, no, not the mug. The mug's too valuable. I don't think that many people have heard of uh, Alan <laughs> I I Sheppard. just think
4: you're just making this up. No, no
3: really, they it. don't. He hasn't got the name. Rec- Everyone's in heard of John Glenn. In America? John, yeah, in America. John Glenn has got the, the big name recognition. People, if you ask about astronauts, Buzz Aldrin is probably going to be the top oh, one.
4: I just want to see the proof on this. Yeah, I'm
3: okay. going to, uh, well, we have to do a survey. Buzz Aldrin, <laughs> I reckon, is going to be the top one. Uh, maybe Neil Armstrong among a certain level but I don't think if you went to the schools you said the schools no one heard of that Valentina was a school Barrett. in Britain
4: about yeah. Valentina Terry I don't think people
3: think. have heard of Neil Armstrong I <sighs> I think John Glenn's got oh, reasonable name recognition I don't think people Richard, have heard of Alan Shepard. no I think well I, I want to, I'm gonna I'm gonna investigate this further I'm pretty okay. certain I think you will be America I you'll be depressed so about
4: it they know they heroes I've got my head I literally have my head in my I hands I think you I think I you just... think better of people than they are If you've any thoughts, I don't say this now after listening to this, on anything we've talked about, do drop us a message or comment on the usual social media platforms, particularly if you're listening in America. (laughs) By our next podcast, we'll know if the three missions due to arrive at Mars have actually made it successfully. So we'll definitely be talking about Mars.
3: Thanks very much to the UK Space Agency for supporting the podcast. And thank you for listening.